Okay, while he's making a number of different copies, let me just give you some background as to what we're going to talk about this Shabbat. We began by speaking last night by how a person responds to tragedy. Of course, tragedy we discussed on two different levels. First, on the level of communal collective as well as private individual. Those are two issues that a person has to face. Of course, we are going to say that both of these have to be approached with both the same categories of Torah mitzvot as well as different ones. And at a certain point, one has to see where there's an overlap. Where is it appropriate to approach individual, personal, private tragedies with the sources of Torah mitzvot? And where one has to create a new, almost a new approach to any kind of personal tragedy that takes place or communion collective. One always raises the question whether or not there's a point where our traditional sources do not simply fill what the individual actually needs or what the collective Am Yisrael actually needs. We spoke about, as you know, last night this morning, seven basic communal crises took place with Jewish people. We began with 722, fourth year, the exile of the ten northern tribes, five of the tips, Harban by Deshon, seven of the year, Harban by Cheni, the Bar Kokhba revolt, which it was 132 to 135. Then we had Yerusha Then we had Givzot Tach, Seven basic national crises, tragedies. And I define these with a three slash fourfold criteria. First of all, there had to be massive destruction, number one. Number two, there had to be geographic dislocation, with some kind of physical movement, because that in of, in of itself also affects people. Geographic dislocation. Third, there had to be a change in the self-perception of the Jewish people, how they view themselves as a result of this crisis and tragedy. And fourth, we said that there was a rabbinic response. The rabbis had a need to address the issue of national crisis of Jewish people. Those were the ways that I chose my seven. And as I mentioned on both occasions, these are not hard and fast, but I think that covers the seven crises that we're speaking about. And of course we spoke about how the first person to address crisis on a national level, namely Amos, that was last night, how did Amos deal with this crisis? All of a sudden, for the first time in Jewish history, you have an overwhelming tragedy. You have Galut Yuchevatim. Ten, twelve Jewish people have been affected, impacted upon by this horrible devastation. What does he say? The role of the rabbi we define as threefold. First of all, the rabbi has to comfort Second has to inspire, inspire to go on living for some reason. And third of all, the rabbi slash navi, navi slash rabbi, has to at a certain point place the entire historical event in some kind of theological framework, trying to make sense of it. And I wasn't willing to define very carefully my categories. At what point was Amos comforting? At what point was Amos inspiring. At one point was Amos theologizing, theologizing. What point is he saying, this is a new theological model through which we now look at our crisis. We then look at Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu also, in five and six, had to confront a massive crisis. Here you have Choban Bayit Rishon. This is amazing. It's overwhelming. Impossible to happen. Those who know Yirmiyahu Perek Zayin would know that it was viewed as theologically blasphemous. It was Epikorsut. It was heresy to, dis- to predict that Ben Amgash would be destroyed. That's something that could not happen. Impossible to happen. Never happened. You said it's got to happen, you deserve to die. And of course, not only Pedagzai was Yimiao, but also in the 29th chapter, if I remember correctly, of Yimiao, 
Yirmiyahu was put on trial. He was actually put on trial for predicting this. Don't look at the sources, please, till I get this. Listen to me first. Yirmiyahu, of course, put on trial because how dare you predict there's going to be Hurban by Rishon? Impossible. Parenthetically, in 1976, I believe it was, a very close friend of mine, 78, wrote an article for tradition saying, could the Jewish people survive destruction of Israel? Could the Jewish people survive destruction of Medina Israel? Could it happen? Would we survive it? Article was written by a Harvard lawyer. He's a friend of mine who was going to Harvard Law School at the time. We were in Boston together. And he was roundly criticized, devastated, condemned, and destroyed by the letters to the editor. How dare you publish an article of such blasphemy? How dare you say that it's impossible for Jewish people to survive the, God forbid, God forbid, destruction of the state of Israel? And he responded to all the letters. At stake over here was a very critical, important point. Whether or not Israel is on the table or not on the table. For most, all the rabbis that responded to the article, Israel is not even item to discuss. We can't even think or talk about the possibility of Israel, God forbid, being destroyed. Gary's approach was, one second, this may happen. You're surrounded by a hundred million Arabs. This may happen. We have to talk about it. And what's more important? Non-discussion of the issue of destruction? Or, let's see, are the Jewish people and survival of Jewish people more important? How do you weigh these two? And Gary was trying to say, how are we going to deal with this God forbid, potential scenario. So now, you're a rabbi, you're in 722, your name is Amos, you have to now comfort, inspire, and perhaps provide a new theological model. You're Yirmiyahu now, 586 before the common era. 586 before the common era. Now, same issue. You have the obligation of what? Number one, comforting the Jewish people. Number two, inspiring them to continue to live. And three, try to make sense where Hashem himself would destroy Ben Dash. It was viewed, again, in that period of time, as heretical to even mention the possibility. And of course, as you know, Yirmiyahu, Nevi'eh Sheker said, Shalom, there's peace, there's no peace. Be'en Shalom. Yirmiyahu said, there's no Shalom, there's Shalom. And the poor people had to now deal with the issue, whom do we believe? Yirmiyahu said, that this place will be like Shiloh, which means it will be destroyed. Or those of the who said, no problem, it's Shalom. And the trial, he of course, painfully went through this incredible trial, and at the end, he's exonerated, but they were all going to kill him, and he was whisked away and his life was saved. Miao was there providing a new theological model, saying that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was willing to do what? Why? What's more important? The nation or the covenant for the nation. The berit between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Jewish people was more important than even Ben HaMikdash. Nobody believed it. Remember, at that point in time, Ben HaMikdash had stood from the year, Shalom HaMikdash, 960 before the common era, built from 963, all the way to 586. People believed in the eternity of Ben HaMikdash. It can never be destroyed, no matter what we do as individuals. The covenant is second place to Ben HaMikdash. Yumiyahu had to provide a new theological model by which to understand Judaism and Jewish self-perception. Good. Then, 70 years of the common era, once again the Jewish people are faced with a massive destruction. How do you respond to massive destruction? 
So we had seen from the Gemara Baba Batra Daf Samach Amud Bet how the Pirushim this morning we had seen how the Pirushim had approached this destruction, and their answer was, "We're not going to eat meat. We're not going to drink wine." And Rabbi Yosha Ben Hanina says, "Impossible. You can't do this. There'll be no Jewish people left. You want to drink water? Can't drink water. There's no more Mayim Alam You want to eat fruit? You can't because there's no Peru Bikurim any longer." So he then has to, and again, provide one of three models. Comfort, inspire, and perhaps provide a new theological model as to understand where Kedosh Baruch Hu would destroy Ben Amagdash again. Take note that many Jews decided the covenant was over. They said, impossible, couldn't be, the covenant is over, and now there's a new covenant, which is what, what's it called, the new covenant? Christianity. And of course you know that <clears throat> They, the Christians, found wonderful sources in the Torah itself to prove Christianity. What's the Hebrew word for New Testament? What's the source of that word? Yeah, exactly. Chapter 32, 31 and 32. Brit Hadashah, New Testament. So they quoted Yemiah himself in that particular issue. Christians saying, Judeo-Christians, sorry, Judeo-Christians saying that really the Brit Hadashah over here. And what's horrifying and shocking is that many Jews bought it then as, fill in the statement, as many Jews buying it today. Last article I read, there are 100,000 Judeo-Christians. When we were involved in college 25 or 30 years ago, and we were involved in missionary, missionary busting and going into the churches and the synagogues and all that, trying to bring, bring Jews back, it wasn't such a threat or a crisis. It was college campuses. We went to a couple of college campuses. We combated their literature. We explained to them where they were wrong. I recall a session with Michael Wishagrog and David Berger, all who are great intellectuals, trying to combat Judeo-Christianizing. And yet to think at that point there was a couple of thousand people, oh, there are 5, 10, 15, 20 synagogues, churches call them. Now you have, what's the number? It's in one of the articles. Maybe a hundred you have. A hundred places that are now missionizing for Judaism to turn them into Christians. The argument is, you no longer have to convert to become Christian, really stay Jewish, become Judeo-Christian, and that's the fulfillment of the covenant. So the Christians then and now, it's 2,000 years later, said what? It's easy to fulfill God's promise to you. What to do is become believer in Yeshua. Don't convert. For 2,000 years, the Christian movement tried to convert Jews. Now they're saying, don't convert Jews, stay Jewish. Accept Yeshu, and you'll be good. Now, let's assume their numbers are really exaggerated. The, the, the Times reported 100,000. Let's say it's 50,000. It's astounding. 50,000 Jews believe in Yeshu. What's more astounding is I know two of them. I know two of them. One is a 75-year-old grandmother who's a Jew for Jesus. She accepted Yeshu. For whatever reason her work, she says, I believe in him. Now it's 15 years. Shocking to me. What Syrian woman grandmother wants to believe in Yeshu? She does. And one was a young man, Syrian person, who grew up in the Syrian community that for some reason became, I can't figure it out, of course he had no religion on his own, that goes without saying, and became a Jew for Yeshu, and married one, a Jewish girl who was also a believer, and they now happily married 15, 16, 17 years later. It's astounding. The third person that I know is an Ashkenazic person, not Syrian, Ashkenazic person, lived and grew up on East 7th, between J and K, that I played basketball with, Mark Savage, lovely guy. 
he became convinced, reform Jew, no real Judaism, all that we understand, he became convinced of that message. The amazing thing is that is a message of, one second, of 2,000 years ago, still involved, amazing. So the question is, how do we now understand Chorban Bayi We discussed this morning, yeah. It's a hard question, it's a very complex phenomenon. We're not going to speak about it right now. Cults in general are very complex. What they provide for an average person, when they do it in Israel, which Yad Achim tries to combat, and going back 20, 30 years ago, we did by, I think it's called Pe'ilim, in those days, Pe'ilim. They were taking poor immigrant Jews and giving them food and giving them clothing and giving them a place to stay. That's different. These are average people. These are normal people, in quotes, that are converted by the message of Christianity to the world. So, yes, I'd like to believe it's because we, because they didn't have a strong Jewish foundation. That's probably true. But my daughter was telling me two days ago, she met one in, on the college campus and arguing with them. She's arguing with them. Like, that's the kind of kid she is. She's going to argue with them and try to see how foolish they are. And she knows Tanakh well enough to do so. Most Jews do not. So it's a complex phenomenon as to the reason why a person would do, would do so, would become a Jew for Yeshua. But 2,000 years ago, it was easy. Why was it easy? Because Yeshua ben Amadash. That proved Christianity. Right. So, if one wants to raise the issue of Christianity in the Holocaust, we, as mentioned this morning, Christianity viewed the Holocaust as theologically correct. Meaning, that Christianity had said all along for 2,000 years, if you reject Yeshua, what's going to happen to you? So it made sense to them. Which is why the chief rabbi of Italy converted to Christianity. Pashut, simple. Which is also the reason why Pope Pius XII said nothing, which we mentioned again this morning. Not to repeat all that information. So the issue over here is that the rabbinic leadership has an obligation of providing comfort, inspiration, and a new theological model to explain, to absorb this crisis, this tragedy. What do we do now? In Bhavabhatra, it talks about some of the religious responses, some of the rabbinic responses. What do we do? And again, you have to determine each statement whether it was comfort, inspiration, or a new theological model to combat the old theological model. Christianity had a new theological model. What was this theological model? Covenant's over, new covenant, let's be Christians. Some Jews opted that way. Perushim said what they said. Different theological models. What I want to approach now is Rabbi Soloveitchik's classic work, called to effect, who is responding to the Holocaust. One should study all of the terrible disasters and tragedies that had befallen the Jewish people. We have an obligation of understanding and knowing all about this. Whether it's Yuchivatim, Baitishon, Baitsheni, Bar Kokhba revolt which failed and which was a horrible disaster to the Jewish people, or Giru Sefarad, or Hamidiki pogroms, or the Holocaust. We have an obligation of trying to understand the phenomenon. We have to use our, our biblical and rabbinic sources. Absolutely. And then we have to think about whether or not there's a need for a new paradigm, a new theological model. And as we read through Rabbi Soloveitchik's article, we won't finish it, of course, here, but this in and of itself has to be challenged. Raise the question. What is Rabbi Soloveitchik doing over here? Is he comforting? Is he inspiring? Is he providing a new theological model by which to understand this terrible horban, this terrible devastation that 
had befallen the Jewish people. And again, I wasn't easy. I, this morning, Emily very easily wanted to say what Yirmiyahu was a new theological model. I'm not so quick to point to new theological models. I could see Yirmiyahu as having provided, rather, comfort slash inspiration. Not a new theological model. She said, no, maybe it really is. Especially in terms of Migilat Echa, Tavata Bahamata, and that entire pedagimel, what was Yirmiyahu trying to do at that point in time? Comfort, inspire, or provide a new theological model. That's something that has to be thought about very carefully before you come to any firm conclusions. So, too, the question should be raised with Koldo di Dofek. I think it's a brilliant work. I think it's extraordinarily comforting. I think it's overwhelmingly inspiring. And I think that the question has to be raised, is Rabbi Salavetsky saying something new theologically? Or is it simply biblical rabbinic sources that he's not trying to create a new theological model? Those who read the essay, anybody read it here? Okay, what do you think? Is it a new theological model, or is it... You should read it again, then. No, no, I don't remember. Oh, you're in touch. Okay, Ezra, what do you think? Mm-hmm. How should we respond to it? Okay, what are the key terms of research? We'll see in a minute. I just want to just give you a kind of introduction. What are the key terms? I believe this is a new theological model. But I'm willing to stand corrected on that. Yeah, Michael? Correct. What is he saying with those two terms? What does your old mean? What does Goral mean? Take, F-A-T-E, good. Overwhelm him. What does the word your old literally mean? Destiny, destiny, correct. But what does destiny mean? That which you can shape on your own despite whatever fate has written against you. Good. So those are key, two key terms. Now, the same is true, let's just parenthetically make the point, on a individual manner. God forbid a person loses a parent, God forbid a person loses a child, whatever tragedies those may be. The rabbi's role in that particular context is the same. Inspire, comfort, inspire, and perhaps provide a theological understanding as to why this took place. And we have to be careful that we don't cross over our categories. When you're comforting, you're not theolo- theologizing. And you want to make sure that the person's ask- you have to understand the question the person's asking you. Why did this happen? Maybe a theological question, also might be simply a question, I need comfort. I need inspiration to go on with my life. I want you to provide me with that inspiration. You don't want to confuse your categories. Because it can be disastrous for that person who seeks out comfort and is given theology, and vice versa. person who needs theology, understanding, framework, logic, and you give him some kind of comfort. It wouldn't work. To understand the questions that are being asked you when you are the rabbi being asked this particular question. Is the person asking the question of comfort, inspiration, or theology? Okay, so we're going to leave the question as to whether this is new theology or not open. And as we go through it, of course, we won't solve the question right now. We'll at least have on our table the possibility that it is something new theologically, or rather simply just biblical rabbinic sources put in a new way, that provides comfort and inspiration, but nothing new theologically. Let's look at the opening paragraph. He begins by raising the most difficult of all questions that any rabbi has to face or had to face. What is that issue? What is that problem? What is that question that he has to worry about? Suffering. Not suffering per se, but rather theodicy. What does theodicy mean? What does the word theodicy mean? Theodicy literally means justification of God's ways. Justification of God's ways. 
that people suffer is an important discussion, but it's worse when it happens to a righteous person. Now I have to understand this. Now question. Do the Nevi'im deal with theodicy? Absolutely. Correct. And if in fact, if you look at Yirmiyahu, let's say, he raises the question, Lama Talecha? He can't figure it out. He's looking for a theological model to understand, to justify the suffering of a, of a people who's going through destruction. Now, in that particular context of Yirmiyahu, I think it's too advanced, there's no answer to that question. Hashem simply tells him, I'm not going to solve this question for you, just go ahead and do what you have to do and talk about destruction. I'm not going to solve the problem for you, Yirmiyahu. What other biblical book deals with the Odyssey? Eyob, of course, is an incredibly important book in this context. And I'll raise the question, does Eyob receive an explanation? Was he happy with the explanation? Yes. Now, important point. He, as an individual, experienced some kind of divine encounter which solved the problem theologically for him. Theologically for him. Right. Now, I'm not sure, in that case, if it really is a theological or a logical response. One has to study the 38th to 39th and 4th chapter of Eyob very carefully to see about his theological response, if in fact there was one. Eyob. Good. Theodicy is justification of God's ways. But it's not simply in these contexts. If you look, as we did last night, in Melachim Bet, chapter Yud Zayin, where there's a description of the destruction of the ten northern tribes, Melachim Bet, we didn't do it last night, but just to point out the notion to you. In chapter 17, we have verse, I'm, I'm not going to go through it, so I don't get it, too, I'm just going to read just two lines. In Melachim Bet, Yud Zayin, we have the first eight verses describe Horban Shomron, ten northern tribes. Then we have from Pasuk, Pasuk, Seven, for the rest of the chapter to 23, theodicy. The explanation as to why this took place. Simply, these people broke the covenant, they had to be punished for it. Here's one example. But throughout the entire prophetic literature, you're going to find theodicy. Vacation of God's ways. If you sin, you'll be punished, and he tries to explain punishment for sin. That's one theological model. If you sin, you'll be punished. That's very simple. It works. You sin, you're punished. Where did it work? Eyob. Eyob didn't work. Nobody in Tanakh is described with a fourfold adjectival description as being so wonderfully righteous. Nobody. Eyob is the epitome of righteousness. And he prays on top of everything else. He prays for his children, for everybody else. May my children have sin. So I'm going to pray for them. Give me a korban for them. Yet, Eyob's model, the, the Navi's model, did not satisfy Eyob. Because what does Eyob say? I didn't sin. Why am I suffering? He needed a new theological model. Okay. So, Rabbi Salvech is going to begin over here with the issue of Sadiq Virawa, theodicy, justification of God's ways. He begins by telling us, Ahata Hidot Asitumot. I won't read everything, but let's just get a sense of his work. One of the hidden mysteries, that Judaism has struggled with, from the dawn of its existence, 
the problem of suffering in the world. Now, I'm going to point out that for many rabbis, there is no problem of suffering in the world. They will simply make the conclusion that if a person is suffering, a person gets sick, he deserves it. That's a, a theological model that Tanakh seems to promote. However, the Gemara Shabbat denies that. The Gemara Shabbat Aflamet Gimel makes the point Yesh Yisurim Belo Het Yesh Mitabelo Avon. So that means there is suffering without transgression, and a person may even die not having sinned. So that theological model was shoved aside. The premise of the Gemara, the Havim Gemara, is that it's no end mitabelo yisurim. There's no death without affliction. If you, without, if you, if you are suffering, you sin. That's the premise. Then the Gemara challenges that. But there are four people who died without having sinned. So that theological model doesn't work any longer. So now we need a new theological model, Gemara Shabbat. Not all, of course, would agree. Some would say simply, if you sin, if you're punished, therefore you sin. If you're suffering, you did a transgression. And there are many Gemarot which, of course, will, in fact, support that theological model. So let's begin on a very different note. It tells us over here that Judaism has struggled from the beginning, dawn of its existence, with the problem of suffering in the world. Adon Nevi'im, it's whom? Moshe Rabbeinu, Kevarit Hanen, Ladon Akol. Moshe Rabbeinu had begged to the master of all. Who's the master of all? At a moment of divine willingness and kindness, at a moment when there was grace in the world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu should enlighten his eyes in this, the law of this deepening, perplexing problem. Dafak Moshe Asharei Shamayim. Moshe banged on the gates of heaven and he screamed. Show me your ways. I want to understand your ways. Now, of course, Rabbi Salvechik over here is according, as the footnote points out, Gimran Berachot. We'll come to that in a moment. Show me your essence. Moshe asked for two distinct issues. One is the ways of God in the world, namely what? Sadiq Allah. Also want to know about your essence. Madua Bilama Yavo Yisurim Al Hadam. Why does a person have to suffer afflictions? Madua Bilama Isboha Sadiq Harasha. Why, even perhaps more perplexing, does the righteous person suffer while the evil person is prosperous? From that wondrous morning, namely, became one with the creator of the world. He sought out a solution to this question, to this all-encompassing, all-embracing, the question of all questions, from that moment on, the prophets, as pointed out Yirmiyahu and others, Israel and the rabbis of Israel, throughout all generations, trying to understand solution to this issue. Let's look for a minute below the star. 
However, was there an answer? The Gemara says, yes, there was an answer. Rabbi Yochanan answered the question. What is the answer in the Gemaran Berachot to this question? Why should a righteous man suffer? Answer, you have Sadiq ben Rasha or Rasha ben Sadiq. So the Gemaran Masechet Berachot tries to solve this issue with a new theological model, or perhaps better, the old theological model with a new twist to it. A new dimension to it. That you could be a wonderfully righteous person and yet suffer. And why are you suffering? Because you're a Ben Rasha at some point along the chain. Right. Now, of course, can you challenge that theological model? What would you say to it? What would you say if you were experiencing a tragedy? Oh, you're suffering because your great-grandfather was... Sorry? Good. So where do we find that? The book of Devarim and Yehezkel, both places, we have a new notion, an interesting notion. As opposed to, I have now individual responsibility. And the book of Devarim also says, Children should not die for their parents. Rather, individual responsibility. Now, what is Yirmiyahu's take on that? What does he say about that issue? Now, is that a theological statement? What is Yemiyahu saying over here? Our forefathers have sinned and they're no longer. We are suffering because of them. Is that comfort, inspirational theology? Well, we could discuss that issue. Not to go back to that. Sorry? It certainly is a complaint. Well, in, in one level, we certainly explain why God did this. But it's not so simple to simply put into his into statement. Well, he's saying we're not responsible. It's comforting that I'm suffering and it's not because of me. Let's say a person is suffering. What are one of his concerns? Did I sin? Why me? Did I sin? Is God angry with me? In a very famous Rabbi Lili Yitzhak narrative, who as well is dealing with horrible, terrible suffering the Jewish people in Europe experienced, in one of those narratives, in one of his statements, and he was one of the greatest of the Hasidic rabbis, what does he say? Oh God, please don't tell me why I'm suffering. I don't need to know. Just tell me if I'm suffering for your sake. And if I'm suffering for your sake, that's sufficient. I'm willing to suffer for your name. But not that I sin, only that I'm suffering because you need me to suffer. That's okay. So that's a new theological model that he's stating over there. So one should raise the question again over there, whether or not Yirmiyahu is saying this theologically, comfortingly, that it's not my responsibility, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm saying I'm suffering, or is it inspirational? We'll leave that on the side for a moment. So, Muslim is saying to us that that Gemara, of course, has Rabbi Meir saying, Moshe lo that Rabbi Yohanan is saying, in fact, he was answered. And he was answered with this new theological model, or a different theological model. Indeed, the Rambam is saying, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu enlightened the eyes of Moshe, by teaching Moshe how all of reality is conducted. Tell us, look at Mordechim chapter 4, part 1. Understand the existence of my world. If you understand how my whole world works, you understand why this problem of suffering. So the Rambam explains the problem of suffering according to his theological model. 
And again, you can raise the question whether Rambam is providing a new model or the old, simply just written differently. It's an interesting question. The Rambam's view of evil is fascinating, where he explains it as evil having no real existence, rather only the privation of good. Analogously, darkness is not real, rather it's the absence of light. It's not real. So there is no real evil in the world according to the Rambam. We're in the book of 154. Is that a new theological model, or is that the old written differently? It would seem to be a new theological model the Rambam uses to try to solve the problem of evil. Not for now. So now, Rabbi Salvechik is going to quote, Habakkuk Tabah Albonat HaTzedek. Now, who's Habakkuk? One of the three Nevi'im who complained bitterly about a particular phenomenon. Who are the three? You have Sifanya, Nahum, Habakkuk. Sifanya was a Navi who prophesied around 620 before the Common Era, who complained about the evil that was inflicted by the Assyrians, Ashur. Horrible evil. Destruction of ten northern tribes. Nazism. He complained. Okay. Complained. And of course he predicts that they will be destroyed. Nahum, in three chapters, describes, he's the on the scenes New York Times reporter, describes the destruction of Ninveh in the year 612 before the Common Era. Ninveh, capital city, Ashur, is now being destroyed. And he writes about it, destruction, which fits well. Evil has to be destroyed. Therefore, Ninveh was evil, and therefore, what's going to happen? They destroyed, and he's, he's describing it. Of course, interestingly, of course, before that is Yonah. Yonah goes to the city of Ninveh, and what does he do? He changes them all around. With what, again? Five words. Right. Five words, he changes the entire city of Ninveh, everybody's now righteous, and it all works out well. Temporarily. Now, along comes Habakkuk, and he's bitter, he's angry. What is he angry? What is he bitter about? Well, Habakkuk raises the issue, and his chapter 1 is one of the most devastating chapters in all of Navi, com- condemning, in effect, God himself. In Habakkuk, he raises the issue, Perek Aleph, and it's so devastating we have to change the text. It's one of the Tikkunei Sofrim. Hamasa, the burden that Habakkuk saw, how long should I scream out and you won't listen? Is Ak Elech, I'll scream out Hamas. There's Hamas in the world, God. You have to do something about it. Where else do we find Hamas? In Noah. And what does God do about Hamas? He destroys the evil people who create Hamas. So I'm telling you, God has Hamas in the world, and the people must destroy them. You're not going to help us? Lama, why any Avin? Why do you make me watch evil? And you see all of this perversity. There's short of Hamas in the day, and there's pillage and plundering and Hamas in front of me. And you carry this strife in the world. I'm going further, Habuk says. Therefore, Tafug Torah. What does Tafug Torah mean? Therefore, Torah shall be weak. You want Torah to be the model of righteousness? It's not. The Lord will never be justice in the world. Because the evil person is now crowning or beating up the righteous person, and therefore they will always be because of you, God. And he goes on, on, and on. Then he folds his hands, beginning of Perikbet. Tells Akadosh Baruch Hu, I'm going to stand right here, which is what he should have said, which is what he said. 
He says over here, Emoda, I will stand by my watch. I tell you what, my debedim, uma ashiv. What should it be? Yashiv. What should it be? What he will answer, what I will answer. What should it say in the text? What he will say on my, what words does he use? Tochahti. Words are tochamin. My rebuke. What is, how does Habakkuk characterize his first speech? It's a rebuke against whom? Against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And yet, this is one, according to the Tanhuma, of course, it's one of the 15 places where the Sofrim changed the text. And rather than say, what he said, Ma Yashiv, they changed it to Ma Ashiv. They didn't change that. We don't know the criteria they used for where they changed all of their changes. Two in the Bible, in the Torah, and 13 or 14 in the rest of Nevi'im. We don't, and Kitavim. We don't know the criteria what they used. It's one of the mysteries of rabbinical literature. But okay. So Habakkuk raised the tochaha, a rebuke against God, and he's waiting, what is God going to answer my rebuke? And Hashem answers him. Is there anger over here? No. Why not? The question is illegitimate. Why is there so much evil in the world? And more specifically, what is bothering Habakkuk? Habakkuk, after all, is seeing something wonderful. What is he seeing that's wonderful? Destruction of Ashur. This makes sense. What's bothering Habakkuk over here? Why is he so upset? Well, what's coming in place of Habakkuk? Babel. Ashur is destroyed. Babel. Epsha. It's worse. God, I don't understand you. You are now punishing Ashur appropriately and properly. And therefore, what should happen now? We should have peace and harmony in the world. And who should now be on top of the world? The righteous Jewish people. Instead, you're pleasing Bavel? What are you doing to me? I can't defend you any longer. I am predicting that God's going to punish evil. So he does so. What does he do? How does he punish evil? Well, he does something even worse. What's worse? Bavel. Bavel's going to do what? Destroy my, my temple. I can't live with this. Analogously, to give you the power of Habakkuk, you're a rabbi living in 1942. And you have the obligation of doing what? Of comforting and inspiring and perhaps trying to provide a theological model that's going to absorb and explain the Holocaust or Nazism. And one of your messages that, look, tell your kahal. God promises he's going to punish the Nazis. And you stand Shabbat after Shabbat saying that Hitler will fall. 41, 42, 43, and 44. Hitler will fall. He'll be destroyed. Now, at a certain point, hold on, at a certain point, what's going to happen? People are going to buy it the first year and second year. And they're going to wait for this. Then they're going to hear reports of what's going on over here. Do it already. Jews are dying, God. Why are you waiting? And finally, at 1945, at the end, you're going to end up saying, what's happened? He dies. Commits suicide in a bunker. Wow. So the rabbi walks to Shul that Shabbat, and what does he say? See, I told you so. He's smiling broadly. See, God works. At the end of the day, evil is punished. And then, you wait a couple of years, and you find out that who comes in place of Hitler? Stalin. Now, it is so that Hitler was responsible for the death of 20 million people. Anybody know how much Stalin was responsible for? 50, right. I was going to say 50 million. 50 million people. So now you're in Habakkuk's position. Habakkuk, rabbi of that period of time, I don't understand the situation. 
Yes, Hitler was evil and killed 20 million people. Instead, now Stalin has the power to kill 52 or 50 million people. What is your ways in the world? I need an answer. And what does the rabbi say at that point? What is Habakkuk saying? I don't understand your system, God. You destroyed Ashur. Fine, wonderful, well. Now, but on top of that, I have a question. He has the question. So he says it. I have a question. Here, as opposed to Yedemiyahu, which of course took place later, Hashem answers him. Any Hashem, a yomen, tov hazon, write a vision. Tov hazon, write a vision. And explain this vision on large tablets. How do they large? So the person who's running can read it. I want a billboard. Here's your answer. And he answers him and says, There's still going to be a vision in the future. Meaning that even though now you don't understand what I'm doing, even though now, right now, there's so many questions in your mind, there's still another vision. Wait. And the end, the future will come. And I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm not disposing. It's going to happen. If he delays, wait for him. Because God says, He he shall in fact come. Referring to the Redeemer, Mashiach, solution to the problem. So in effect, what is Hashem telling Habakkuk? Patience. Right. It's going to happen. I guarantee, I'm putting my credibility on the line, God says, that I will solve this problem of evil in the world. But you have to wait. There is a vision that you don't have it. You don't have the whole picture of reality. You have a small slice. Ashur, Babel, small slice. There's a greater, broader picture that you have to appreciate Habakkuk. Now, of course, we have to, not now, but one has to study, analyze, is Habakkuk satisfied with this new theological model, or old theological model, that God is simply saying, Imit just wait, wait, if he delays, he shall come, he won't delay, he'll be here. There's an end to history wherein everything will work out well. There'll be redemption. God says, God promises, buy it. Okay. Habakkuk. So Habakkuk Habakkuk asked regarding the question of rights in the world. Yirmiyahu. We spoke Yirmiyahu. All have thought about this terrible problem. The whole entire book of Iyov is all dedicated to this perplexity. This ancient of problems, this secret teaching over here, it is still floating in our world. It's a beautiful word, what does it bring to mind? Why does Rabbi Sevelechuk use this? Right. Why would Vasilevich use the word from Bereshit over here? It's a primeval issue, going back to really creation. Baked into the fabric of creation is the problem of evil. And of course, Bereshit concludes with Kitov. So Merahevet, floating in our world, is still this issue. The Toba'at seeks out, et pi anuha, the secret. Lama no ten, why does God allow evil to rule over his creation? That's the question. The legend begins by talking about the hidden mystery of evil. And therefore it's an old problem. Now, 
This magic goes on and continues. Hayadut l'hatara l'chof l'tahim. Judaism in seeking its, ha- its haven of refuge, Ba'ulam, Shasua is divided, Rutar is cut, Al-Yadeh Yisurek Yum, by the afflictions of life, of living, of existence. Vakashama'anan, it seeks out an answer, Lehidat Pilaim Shaktevil Ashuleh, to the puzzle, the wondrous puzzle, mystery, of evil suffering that rules. It seems to be the evil seems to rule over without any boundaries. Now, writing in the aftermath of the Holocaust, is this statement questionable? No. It seems to be this is evil. Now the subject says this has now come to a new formulation and a new definition something new is happening over here it's come to a new formulation and is in need or has a new definition which has in this new formulation definition an expansion and a deepening of the problem together so Rabbi Salajik is saying over here that's not the old problem writ again. There's something new and different over here that is an expansion of the old problem and a deepening, a deepening understanding of the old problem. Raising the question of suffering, Judaism asserts, if Sharit he, two dimensions, two separate dimensions, how we approach the problem of evil, he says, can be approached with two aspects or two dimensions to it. Michael, Moral, the Yehud. Fate and destiny. Now again, you could raise the question, can any other Jewish thinker, biblical or rabbinic, ever pose the problem of evil with these two dimensions, namely fate and destiny? So far, no. I don't know of any. Now wait, wait, one second. Is that a biblical concept or that's his imposition of his categories on the Bible? Torah does not, in fact, tell us about Yehud Moral. But rather, what's his intent? Is the intent over there to speak about fate and destiny? Or is it a brilliant turn of a phrase that he's using to buttress his position? I agree that it's very good. Okay, my question to you would be, is had you not had this essay in front of you, and you read this Pesukim, would you have ever dreamed this Pesukim is dealing with Goran Yod? Or are you only thinking that because he said it first? Okay, so shot is that which is in the Pasuk usually. And it's reasonable as a scientific criteria to say that we could all repeat it, we could all know of this before he even said it. But nobody ever did. So I hear what you're saying, and with Robert Salvechik, his readings of text are so brilliant, the line is so fine, that you're never really quite certain is he reading into it, or is it the Nikra? Same thing when you read The Lonely Man of Faith, you read his understanding of Rashid Aleph and Bet. Nobody ever read or wrote or thought about this new view of Rashid Aleph and Bet. And yet, it's new. Is it he reading into it and therefore Dirash? Or is it what the Torah really intended that for two or three thousand nobody ever said? Is it Peshat or Dirash? Is it exegesis or eisegesis is the question. And I'm willing to certainly admit that it's Peshat. Because of who he is. He sees it as Peshat. Although nobody, Jewish ever, with thousands of Tabriyah 
and thinkers and writers, nobody ever said what he said regarding either Quran al-Azil or Bashid al Bet. But I think it's Peshat too. But I think it's, I'm a thin ice I say it, but I do believe it's Peshat. But that might be loyalty to him and who knows what else is involved in that statement. So, but I, I would, I would see it as I'm on the thin line of deciding that issue. I'm torn between those two issues. Let's leave it for now. Okay. So it's eventually always going to say that we're going to now frame this old age, this age old problem with two new dimensions, two new categories called fate and destiny. Judaism always has distinguished between kiyum gorali the kiyum yaudi between living a life of fate and I'll define in a moment what that means and living a life of destiny. Ben ha'ani yelid ha'goral la'ani ben ha'yaud to the I. But so that you guys an existentialist goes back to the individual person who's suffering. And he's going to approach that person who's suffering and going to ask that person, are you a person of fate or of destiny? What does he mean by that question? What's the fundamental undercurrent of what he's talking about over here? One more time, one more time, one more time. Bobby. Okay, good. So the man of Goral is crushed by the tragedy, by the crisis, and cannot move. He's immobilized by the philosophizing, thinking, why me? How me? How do I understand that? And therefore never goes one step further, is Isha Goral. Isha Yehud, as I'll describe in the next paragraph, is somebody else who's going to say, even though I don't understand, and I cannot put into any kind of coherent theological framework that makes sense, still what am I going to do? I'm going through. I'll take another step. It's that person who chooses to live life fully, completely, and totally, even though they've suffered a crushing defeat. That is inexplicable. He remains with a question mark as to the problem of evil. He won't solve the problem of evil. Not not care. Does not allow himself to philosophize ad infinitum slash ad nauseum and rather simply says, I'm now going to live life. What should the Jewish people do at this point? They, they were faced at 1950-51-52. You were crushed by the Holocaust. And now you're still struggling for existence. So now we could raise the question. Is the covenant still in effect? Yes or no? Does God still love us? Yes or no? Six million Jews died, probably doesn't love us. Million and a half babies thrown into a fire, probably doesn't love us. And you could struggle. No, no, it does love us, but there's a reason we don't know the reason for this. And you could back and forth and not live life fully. And what is he saying over here? Obviously that point is going to come out to down the road. He's going to talk about A, that one must live life even though one does not understand fully what happened. At all. At all. At all. At all. And then he will try to provide Iyov as a possible model. Iyov down below in chapter 2 will provide a possible model for some semblance of an, of a solution. In the beginning, it's an at all, correct. But as he goes into Eov, he's going to say that Eov learned something through his suffering. There's a quasi-explanation for Eov's life of tribulation. So we'll get to that if we have time later on. Interesting, of course, is your model was expressed by Richard Rubenstein, one of the uh, foremost of Holocaust theologians, that in fact said that. Said that we have to go on 
and we're now going to create a new God in order to believe in, which he called the land of Israel. He said, I'm really a pagan. We all have to be pagans. Go deify the land of Israel, and that will celebrate that, and we'll be Jews on religion, and that's what we have to do, because there can't be a God of history any longer. And of course, he was challenged by Michael Wissagrad and Irving Greenberg and other people with creating that new Wiccan theological model, right? And he was challenged by saying that, therefore, you've placed at the center of your theology destruction. And Jews can never survive that way. You've placed the center, the model you have, what's your model, what are you building, what's your theological model? Khorban. So you're being Yehud, but you're doing it through Khorban. And rather, Irving Greenberg and Michael Wishbuck and others would say to him, you can't do that. That's a death knell. Rather, your model still has to be Yitzhak Messiah. God is a God who redeems. Hashem took us out of Egypt. That was a horrible, evil situation that we lived in, and now God took us out. That's our model. Gamze Ya'avor. And we have to fight through towards our destiny, but with our theological model always being Yitzhak Messiah. That is the genius and the beauty and the wonder of Tanakh. Yitzhak Messiah is a theological model through which we see the entire world. Yitzhak Messiah, not Khorban. First of all, there are multiple approaches. First of all, there are multiple approaches to this, is what we're saying. There are multiple theological models. The same spot is where we want to get, which is survival. Because we're not, we're not willing to accept death and defeat, despite destruction. Although, one second, although Richard Rubenstein did. He's accepting death and defeat, saying there's no, it's a whole new theology, it's a whole new relationship to God. There's no God. There's no God. And those Jews who, at the Khorban Bay Cheney said, Christianity had another theological model. So obviously, Rosovedic, myself, and all of those others are not willing to accept that. Now, you may not be able to assimilate and utilize our theological model, and therefore you need another one. But I would only allow you that if you're asking me the question as a temporary safe haven. You need it now to deny. My model would be Onan. Onan, one second, Onan is a person who cannot say a beracha. person suffers a devastating death in the family. What happens? He's not allowed to say a beracha. Don't address God at all. Don't do any mitzvot aser. So eat without saying a beracha. So somebody said beracha for 40 years. It's amazing. So that, that might be a temporary model. Suspension as opposed to denial. Your first point was about denial. I think it was about suspension. We would, we'd be willing to entertain suspension. Although I would be feel, I feel more comfortable if I were able to find a biblical rabbinic model for suspension. I'm not sure. I have to think about that and look through that to see if there is that. That's an important point. But going ahead, that Yehud would demand for me to do, I must go ahead, but it has to be through the old theological model. Because we are Jews that have a continuous Jewish history for 3,000 years. But the person who had gone through it, the person who was through the Shoah, who went through the Holocaust, to whom Rabbi Salak is addressing this essay, needs something. He needs to fit into his religious outlook something at this point in time. To tell him simply, wait, trust me, which worked for Habakkuk. You're saying two centuries. Intellectually, on a logical, rational basis, of course you're right. The Jews needed something at this point in time. But so Rebecca wrote this article, which again is interesting, is that's unique that, could you think of any other Gadol Hador that wrote something similar to this? Trying to explain. They're all saying, I'm using my model of Habakkuk. You have to have faith, and that's it. In the famous formulation of uh, one rabbi that I once had, he said that those who believe have no questions. Exactly. So now I didn't buy that then, 30 years ago. That wasn't an appropriate answer. I needed this. 
and many needed this essay, this article, to provide something theologically new or old, new formulation that's going to be able to give me some understanding. Comfort, yes. Inspiration, yes. New theological model, perhaps. But it worked. It worked for many people saying, I don't have the answer, but I can live with the question. Can you live with the question? If I told the person, wait 200 years and you'll find your answer, you may not have been able to live with that question 200 years. Although you're right, logically, still no, he needed this. I think on one level of awareness of intellection or other, at some point, most people raise the question. There is a book, if you want to pursue this, called Faith and Doubt of Holocaust Survivors, which addresses this issue. And whereas you said the Holocaust that you had met, it's a limited, a limited cross-section. Eliezer Berkowitz, of course, deals with this question in the beginning of the face of the Holocaust. Eli Wazel is that person who was raised as a Hasidic Jew, Hasidic and Sigyet, as a Hungarian Satma Jew. At the end, his whole entire faith world was shattered by this. We don't know this is a view. Maybe they became thinkers because of the Holocaust. Having to try to justify, rationalize, theodicize what took place. So the answer to your question is that it needs much more careful study. And again, this book is only one attempt at that, trying to analyze faith and doubt of Holocaust survivors. Who really questioned? What was their background? The Hasidic Jew did not question, perhaps. Some did. The secular Jew didn't question because it confirmed him in his, in his atheism. And who, the, and that middle group who became religious because of the Holocaust, who were secular, and those who the opposite became irreligious because of the Holocaust, who were religious at first, like, like Wiesel. We don't know. So your question is well taken, but it has to be analyzed and one has to read all these works in order to come to a sociological, psychological understanding as to who fell in what camp at what point. Let's go a little bit further. Third paragraph tells us and defines for us something that we've already known, that we've already discussed. What does it mean, kiyum gorali, kesad? What does it mean for a person to be a victim of faith? Veo kiyum meunat, a forced existence. Meaning that you have no choice in matter. Just live life. Do no choice of your own. Kiyum obadti. Shaluv. Your life is a forced life that is tied to a chain. A links of chain. Mechanit. What does mechanit mean? Mechanical. Mechanistic. It's mechanical. Exactly that. In other words, you just simply are strewn as a leaf with the wind. That is kiyum gorali. Yetulat mashma'ut. Without... Meaning, no meaning. Kivun tachlit. There's no meaning, there's no direction, there's no purpose to your life. Umeshu'ubad. You are enslaved to the powers around you. Stukhan ithaf hayachit. By which the individual is blown away. By the providence without even taking you into account. You are mechanically living. You are pushed into being blown to all patients. Demut object. You are only an object. There's no I-ness to you, to you any longer. Demut object, la, ani hagurali. You are simply an object subject to the forces of nature. And you have no individuality by which you're going to strive for. Kiobyek humofiyak asur lokaoseh. As an object, you are now appearing as asur. You are made and not somebody who is an oseh. Oseh is active, asur is passive. So here he's saying to you that the man of faith is simply allowing himself to be pushed and blown by the forces at large around him with no will, no strength, 
no desire to take a step forward. Asui hu al yedeh hitnagshuto has to delete. You are made by virtue of the content, of the causal content you have imahutz with outside world, the objective outside world. Kehefet liumat chayvet as one object to another object. As the wind blows the leaf, you are blown by the forces of nature. You do nothing to try to change direction. Nikla, you are caught. Anigurali, the anigurali is caught. Bekap dynamika atuma, a closed dynamic. Shukulam of nit lebar, closed to the outside, anything that's outside. Shutor nebucha, your existence is confused. There's no internal sense to that person. There's no independence and there's no eyeness to that person. The Aniagurali, that faithful eye, Mahish, denies it Atmoa denies the essence of that person, because the eyeness of the person cannot be sustained. Because the eyeness of as a subject and the eyes of an object cannot both coexist in the same same context at all. In Anuchyut the eyes of doing and the being an object cannot both coexist. So now what do you do? So what does he want of here? He does not want to be only an object. Isha Goral is a man who is only an object subject to the whims of faith. And he wants you to be what you said second of all. Yes, we all actually do shift from one to the other. That's true. But he wants you now, to at this point in time, to shift to the active, participating person who's now going to be the doer rather than the object of what is done to him. Next paragraph describes that. On this background, rises and floats evil in all of its terror. There are two pathways, the existence in the, the, the faithful existence. A priori, the man who is object, Asur is bound in the change of existence without any choice of his own. He stands confused. Any person that suffers this massive loss is now first confused. What do I do now? Can't turn. He stands confused and overwhelmed by the mystery which is called suffering. Faith laughs at him. Haviyato's existence is torn apart. What do I do now to survive? It self-contradicts, denies Your whole life is now viewed as valueless and meaningless. Denied by the faiths. Denies the value, irka, and its worth and importance. The fear of destruction attacks him and destroys his body and his soul and his psychology. There's nothing left inside that person that's able to now stand strong and go ahead. Wandering is the person who suffers in the empty void Emptiness in the void of the world. Destruction. E. Can't read the word. Elohim. 
Elokit. Perusa alav. Divine destruction is now over that person. Aleha. Perusa aleha. On his life. Zaharon apo. And divine anger. Matuach nigda. Is now facing that person's life. Bekulo. And all he does. Muhrad. Trembling. Murgaz. Confused. Emotionally trembling. What do I do now? So that just goes on. Just to summarize some of these points. To saying that that person of Goral cannot function whatsoever. Now, paragraph five. After Azut after that physical trembling experience, psychic, better psychic, right? Psychological, good. Psychic, good. after that trembling immobilization of the personality, as his first reaction, now comes intellectual insight. With some kind of time comes intellectual insight that delves into to understanding existence and a strengthening with the security with and trust of the person. I've now gone, gone through my overwhelming experience. What do I do now? I'm confused and perplexed. But after that, now I take a step back for this person of Goral. This is still a Goral person. And now I'm going to attempt to use my Ani to do what? To understand the evil that has perplexed me. Now I'm going to understand it. At this point, the man begins to do what? To understand evil. And to ask very difficult serious questions about all of this. Page 2. He now is going to investigate for the foundation, intellectual foundations of evil in the world. He's going to go the whole nine yards now intellectually. He's already been shaken psychologically. But now I can understand even if I'm going to survive because I understand evil. And now he's going to try to find shalva harmonia, peace and harmony. Which is positive and negative. And to remove the sting of the tension between the thesis, which is good, and the antithesis, which is evil. I'm now going to be able to live life harmoniously and tranquilly. Question, is he going to be able to do this? Answer, no. Even with all of your intellectualization, intellectualization is going to come to that point that you can't do it. Intellectual is not going to solve your problem. Why is Obasarjik saying this? What is his angle over here? He wants to go beyond the categories after psychic confusion and intellectualization of the event. He wants to get you to another place of trying to deal with suffering, not psychologically and not intellectually, with action. In fact, only action is that which eventually is going to solve your problem. The Ani will remain immobilized by the confusion but surpassed, now intellectualism, immobilization, then the action itself is what's going to make you a shaper of your destiny, and that's the only hope you have. Yeah, well, he, no, he's asur if he's psychologically confused and asui. He's asur by being asui. That's correct. Right. But now he's trying to break out of that. He's now trying to break out of that mold. And he's trying to be an author. I want to understand all this. But he's telling you now that you won't understand it. 
This won't do it for you. And if it won't do it for you, then what should I do? You have to become Ishayo to solve the problem. What's important over here is not how you were born or where you were born, but what you do with what you were given. To be the Oseh, exactly the same. You have to, you're born as an Asui. But the person that survives has his point is the person that survives has the obligation of being an Oseh. Let me go one more point over here. So he says to the person who's going to try to find the harmony between the decent antithesis. The man comes to a metaphysical understanding of evil. He's now able to compromise with that evil. He's going to try to cover it up. Cover the evil. He's going to use Michael, his intellectualism, in order to do what? To intellectually, whatever the God has given him, until he's able to rule over individually. Deny it. Deny. I deny evil. That's the Rambam. Deny this of evil. Yes. The next paragraph. One more minute. But Judaism, which is a realistic approach, and man and his stance in reality, Hedina understood, the Rambam wants to cover it up. The intellectual wants to cover it up. But Judaism with this realism is not going to allow you to cover it up. He was not given over to erasure or covering it up. And all of the attempts to lessen to lessen the value of the nigud, the the contrast, the nigud, the the opposite, the abilug and the pilug tearing apart in existence. It will not bring you to any kind of tranquility and harmony of the soul. Right. It took me 20 minutes to do that one. And will not bring you to, to understand the secret of existence. Evil is there and it cannot be denied. Yes, no, ra. There is evil in the world. Yes, no, sevel, yes, nam, yisure, sheor, betofet, ba'olam. There is suffering in the world and there is the afflictions a hell-like afflictions in the world. Now, me should not say, if you want to fool yourself, you want to fool yourself that that's more. By ignoring all of this, it won't work. By romanticizing man's life, it won't work eventually. Eventually, you'll be confronted by the evil. And therefore, Mr. Vechik, and we'll end with this, in the next two paragraphs, tells you that the man of Goral will not work, will not ultimately create a worldview but rather, he says, that the man of Yehud, which we've already discussed, the man who's able to rise above the suffering that he's experiencing and positively see the world to create is the man who is the true Jewish personality. Jewish people now suffer the Holocaust. His answer over here to you is to not deny the Holocaust. It happened. And not try to intellectualize it. You can't do so. And try to rise above the psychic confusion that's going to attack you. In order to do what? Build the land of Israel. This is a classic Zionistic essay by his coming down the way, ten pages into, the, into this, by saying that the only answer you have to evil is by doing, is by building, and this was his clarion call wherein he says that God has given us the opportunity by knocking on the door six times, based on Shira Shirim, by knocking on the door six times, and now we have to answer the knock. Shesh Tefekot, six times. You answer the knock by responding to Hashem's call, which is, go ahead and politically and militarily and theologically all now rising above the evil of the Holocaust without understanding in order to build Israel. 
So his answer to this entire problem of evil is not solving it, but rather rising above it and trying to build. It failed. God willing, we should all see some hot Yerushalayim, and we should all take the lessons that we learned to heart.